Hey, uh, my name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. It's it's really good to be with you. Um, if you if you haven't caught it already, it's it's Christmas time, and we've been in this series as. as Connor just said of, of slow Christmas, so I don't know what it's been like for you uh, these last number of weeks, but um, slow has been a challenge uh, to try to slow down and to try to limit what, what, what we do, what we, how we spend our time, how, how much we go different places and get together and all of that. And so um, if you're feeling like uh, you're grading yourself and you see slow Christmas and you're like, yeah, mine's been like frantic, fast, crazy Christmas, um, that's okay. We've, we've kind of done these videos in an effort to kind of get us to slow down and take a deep breath. So take a deep breath. Um, slow down. Let this hour, hour and a half that we're together uh, be a time that is actually calm, if that's possible for you. We hope it is. Um, but to take a deep breath and to, to slow down. And the, the whole purpose and intention behind it is that we would experience Jesus. Uh, that we, as we tell the story over and over again of what Advent is and why it is. And if you're not familiar with Advent, Advent is this, it's basically it's a Latin term. So it's an opportunity. If you want to use it, feel free to use it and sound smart with your friends. But Advent is a Latin term that means arrival. And it's focused on the arrival of Jesus. So we're telling the story of the arrival of Jesus, of Jesus being born. And the way that we're doing it is the way that churches have done this for over 1,500 years. It was a practice that was initiated uh, 1,500 years ago, and it involves candles. And so we've got these candles up here, if you're wondering. And this one, I'm actually kind of, we lit this one first. It's the lowest now. Um, and this one stood for hope. And then the next one was uh, peace uh, and then joy. And for hope, uh, we, we've done these uh, analog assignments in an attempt to invite us and give us some tracks to actually slow down. And so the hope one, we ended that week with an invitation to prayer walk. Um, now, some of you can speed walk and that's fine, but the intention was to actually slow down and walk somewhere in your neighborhood or work or wherever you want to walk and to pray for the people around you. The next week was, was peace and uh, the invitation there was to actually set aside tech for a fixed amount of time uh, to, to think through some questions or reflection, but not just to do that, but then to talk about it and process it with somebody. Uh, and then the third one that, that we lit and, and did was last week was joy. Uh, and we did actually an exercise here together where we kind of practiced gratitude and thoughts through some questions that we're, grat that we're grateful for. And then we, we took time to write a name of somebody that we wanted to write a postcard for. And so many of us took postcards with us uh, and mailed those after writing uh, to someone. Uh, and I noticed, I hope this is okay to share, Connor taught last week uh, and he shared uh, kind of just personally that one of the ways that he uh, kind of thinks about joy is, is the, the interaction with somebody who knows him personally and, and used an illustration of being able to see a scar on the back of his head that he couldn't see because his hair was long and he got a haircut this week. And so, Connor, I can see your scar and I, I'm glad to see you. And so the, he used that as an illustration of joy. So I hope you experienced joy in some way this week and were able to slow down. Um, I'm gonna light this, this fourth candle. And so hope, peace, joy, and then love. And I'm gonna, oh, good. And the reason that we scheduled and, and did uh, these four weeks uh, this way is because we'll gather uh, next Sunday on uh, Christmas Eve and we'll light a fifth candle. And the fifth candle is for Christ. So it's known as the Christ candle. What this practice and experience is intended to do is to help us to, to slow down and to remember the story or to hear the story for the first time, but to reflect on on how God sees and feels about us and what he has done uh, for us. And so that's why we've done, done this. And we're, so we're gonna talk about love uh, today, if you haven't picked that up in the words that we've sung and, uh, already, but we're gonna do that. But before we do that, if you would just pray with me, uh, and then we're gonna look to scripture uh, and talk about God's love for me and, and for you. So let's pray together. God, we want to acknowledge your presence here. We want to acknowledge that you are good. We've sung that, those words already, that you are good and that you are God. And so we acknowledge that you're here, uh, that this is actually your time and space, and we've, we've entered into your moment. And you are here. This is your place. This is sacred time. And so, God, in this place and time, would you be acknowledged as, as good and as, as worthy of our attention and focus that you're just, that you are the one who brings peace into a turmoil, that you bring joy where there's a sense of loss and need, that you bring hope where there seems to be no hope. And it's all because you love us. And Holy Spirit, we in, invite you to move and work right now, right here in this place, in us, 
uh, that you would wake us up and sharpen our minds, that we'd actually be able to think, that you would soften our hearts, that we'd be able to, to feel and to be changed by you. Holy Spirit, would you, would you work in this time right now? And Jesus, as we tell your story again, as we look to your word, to scripture, would you be the one to guide us and teach us and to lead us forward? It's, it's you that we want to see and hear from. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, in, uh, it was November 14th, November 14th, 2003. I don't know if anybody's got that day marked out. Um, it was a little over 20 years ago, uh, a movie premiered. Love Actually. Love Actually. It's 20 years old, 20 years old in one month. Um, I have not seen it 20 times, but I have seen it easily a half dozen times. Um, Love Actually, it's actually a, a movie set in, in London, filmed uh, mostly in London, a little bit of France. Uh, and it's, it tells the stories, basically interwoven together, of, of 10 relationships, of 10 groups of either two or three people kind of all woven together uh, about love. And it's set in these five weeks that run up to Christmas. And they're frantic and crazy and, and chaotic and wild, just as you would imagine in a, in a city like London and trying to follow all these stories and all things. And it's, it's fascinating. Um, how many of you have seen uh, Love Actually this year? Okay, thank you, thank you. Um, how many of you have seen it before? Most, okay, many, many. Um, how many of you will now watch it this afternoon? Um, so Love Actually, it's these, it's these 10 stories that are interwoven together. One of them is a, uh, uh, he's like a rock star, but he's like, he's like I think he's, his character is in his 70s. Um, and so he's kind of way past his, his prime and he's trying to make a comeback and sell one last record. And um, part of his character is that he's just slept with all of these women and that's kind of what he's known for. But his love story ends up being not finding the next woman but of a friendship with a manager that he's, he's, he's worked with all of these years, decades together, and they're buds and they're friends, and that was his love that he was discovering and, and learning. Another one is uh, of a guy who goes to a wedding by himself because his wife is sick. He goes home early to check on her, and she's having an affair, and he splits London and goes to France to write a book and falls in love with uh, a housekeeper and cook that is, that is serving the place that he's staying at, uh, and they don't speak the same language. She speaks Portuguese, and he goes and learns Portuguese and then finds her later and proposes to her, and that's his love story. Another one is of a school-aged kid who falls in love or falls in infatuation with uh, a classmate who uh, is, is a girl and is, is, goes on tour and he has to go say goodbye to her and, and just to define like, hey, you are the one that I love and there's this great scene at the end of that. And there's another one, and this is maybe the most iconic one from the film, uh, where it's, it's three friends, two of which get married, a guy and a gal, and uh, the third in, in this friendship is a guy who films at the wedding. He's in the wedding, but he is also filming the wedding and uh, he doesn't give the film to the couple afterwards because what he has done is basically stared at her, the bride, the whole ceremony and reception and doesn't want to hand over the footage because it will be very obvious that he is in love with her. And at the very end of the movie, I'm going to ruin it for you, but um, you've seen this in commercials. He knocks on their door um, and his, fr his friend, the husband, is inside watching TV. She answers the door and he goes like this, be quiet. And he's got poster board written a message to her and goes one board after the other where he basically describes you're perfect just the way you are I love you and she doesn't know what to do because she's married and they're friends and all that and he is able in that moment to let her go and move on past her um, and that's so you've seen that probably in commercials or other places that's kind of the iconic scene from the movie love actually 10 stories it follows all of them through love and there's something that is that ties them all together there's something that's similar with all of them and that's that they all come to a crisis of initiative of who's gonna make the first move? Who's gonna put themselves out there? Who's gonna take the step and to say, this is how I feel about you? Who's gonna say, I, I love you, I value you, I care about you deeply? Who's gonna do that? And they go back and forth and it gets all bungled and it's entertaining and it's fun. And so now people have watched this movie over and over and over again. It's just kind of one of great Christmas movies to watch, very entertaining, crisis of love, or a crisis of initiative, of who's gonna take the initiative to describe their love for another person. An 
answer to that crisis of initiative. It actually says, God's taken the first step towards us. There's this verse that, that we've read a number of times already, and if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you've heard it before. And even if you're not, these words might sound familiar to you. But it's as if angels talking to shepherds, and it says this in Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. Angels talking to shepherds. We read it last week. You're familiar with it. It's this declaration that God has done something. God has actually sent his son. God has taken the initiative to say that I love you, that I value you, that I care for you, that I see you, that he's done something. And in this story of the birth story of Jesus, the Christmas story, we see that God takes the initiative. There's this question that, that each and every one of us uh, feel and ask that runs through our, our mind consistently, that runs through our, even our existence. And it's, it's why a movie like Love actually, actually is relevant and connects with us and that we see it and we can relate to all of the different elements that are in there. And it's, it's said this way by a guy named Gordon T. Smith. He says it this way. What we seek is to live lives that are surrounded by a conscious awareness that we're loved. What we seek is to live lives that are surrounded by a conscious awareness that we're loved. Now, maybe you haven't said that in like, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've identified that when I wake up in the morning. But when you hear that, when you read that, there's a sense that this is, this is what I feel. I actually have a, an innate, a human desire, a good desire to know that I'm loved, that somebody else sees me and loves me. And the Advent story and why we, why we come back to it year after year, why followers of Jesus honor it and take time with it and reread it and retell the story and decorate a room like this and have traditions is because it answers this need for us. It reminds us that there is a God who loves us there is a God who sees us. There is a God who values us, and he takes the initiative towards us. There's a, uh, there's a verse that, uh, that I want to read that, that is a few lines from uh, a letter that is written by a guy about, about 50 years 50 to 60 years after Jesus is born. So after the Advent story happens, the Christmas story first happens, about 50 or 60 years later, there's a letter that, that a guy named Paul writes to some friends. And he, he's writing it and he says, I, I want you to know about God's love. But he, he writes it in a very kind of complex, kind of interesting way. And so I want us to look at it together and see what it tells us about God's love for us today. It's, it's Romans chapter 5, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. And it says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though a good person someone might possibly dare to die for. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He starts out talking about hope, and he says, hope doesn't put us to shame. If we were to hope for something and desire something and, and anticipate it and look forward to it, we're, we're not embarrassed. We're not going to be disappointed. And, and that's risk for any of you. If you think about anything that you hope for, there's a sense of it might not happen. And he's writing and saying, no, 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 when, when, when you hope, when you put your hope in Jesus, you actually aren't embarrassed or put to shame. And the reason is because you have confirmation because the Holy Spirit's been poured out to you. And then he goes on kind of this, like, this thought experiment. And says, yeah, well, like, most, most people wouldn't die for somebody who's not good. And maybe, you know, somebody would die for somebody who is, who is good every once in a while, maybe. You, could, you can imagine you dying for somebody that you respect or love or think is good and righteous. But that doesn't even happen that often. And then he ends with this line. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And what we have is, is Paul's writing this again. He's writing this letter to his friends, and he's saying, I, I want you to understand God's love. But he does it in these three ways. He says, that God loves you. There's just like the idea of that. Um, but more than that, I want you to know that God actually wants you to, to feel his love. And so when he says the Holy Spirit's been poured out into your heart, there's, there's an, a, an effective, an emotion, a, a, like an experience of God loving. So there's an idea. There's, there, there's like the experience of actually feeling loved. 
And then there's, there's behavior that goes with it, that God demonstrates it in some way. And so the Advent story is meant to remind us that God loves us and that he took the first step, that he took the initiative for us. This question that we're always asking is, who loves me? I want to be consciously aware that I am loved at all times, and God actually has already done that. And so the, the Advent story, the Christmas story over and over reminds us that. But after the fact, in the time in which we live now, that as Paul was writing to his friends, would we actually know, have this idea that God loves us, but beyond that, have an experience and feel it, and then have behavior that backs it up, that we know it. So, so what I wanna do is take a few moments just to walk through those three things that Paul seemed really, really concerned about, that we know it, under, like intellectually know it, but beyond that, that we feel it, that we can actually tell somebody, I, I know that God loves me because I've, I've felt it, I've experienced it. And then I have behavior. I can point to some behavior and action where God's demonstrated that. So let's, let's do those three things just, just for a moment. The first is, I, what does it mean just to understand like on a, on a conceptual level? And w w to talk about love like as a concept is, is some kind of, so, somehow it just seems like we drain the power out of it immediately. Um, I, when I was, uh, I think I was about 34, Abby and I had been married 11 years. And um, she said, we need to talk one night. Um, and I said, okay. And we sat down and she said, uh, um, we need to go to marriage counseling. And um, I said, I don't feel loved right now. This is not. No, I, uh, she did very kindly, very gently looking back. I couldn't have told you that then, but like, okay. Um, very gently, but very directly, we, we need to go to marriage counseling. Now, I, I've shared this before, so if you've been around Mosaic, this, you've heard this before, um, but just to, if you're hearing this for the first time, I need to tell you that in, in my mind, the thoughts that were going through my mind, and this is like, this is just exactly what through, went through my mind was like, wow, you must be in a bad place, you need some help. I will, I will do that with you and for you, and, and we together will get the help that you need. And, and I thought that until about 39 minutes into our first session and then realized this was entirely about me. And that thought, like, I like short-circuited it a bit and was like, what is going on? And I had to deal with this reality that, no, this was about me and me growing up as a husband and as a man and as Abby's partner. And I had to grow, and there's a whole journey that went for three years, and it was great, and, and then we grew a ton, it was so good, and then about 10 years later, um, we together actually said, yeah, we need to go, go back and, and get a tune-up and work again, and so we did for about another three years, and so, um, I, you know, now we, we look ahead and go, okay, at, at decade three, we'll probably need to go again, and so we literally have it budgeted in our budget, like if you were to pull up our budget, we actually have it in there now, because we believe in it, and it's a good thing, and it's served us really, really well. We've grown, and we're different people. And I can tell you I'm a different husband because I've gone to marriage counseling with my wife and I've gone to a counselor on my own this second round. It's been so good. When I was sitting there in the, in the, in the office the, the, first, the first time we ever went to marriage counseling, and I'm there, I'm like, I, I love, love Abby. I love her and I want to do whatever I can. Once I got there, it took me a little while to get there, but once I was there, um, but in those weeks and months getting to that place, and we would be in this session with this, with this really good counselor, I would, I would feel pinched at times and uncomfortable. And, and I would go to a happy place and kind of eject out of that because it was more than I could handle at a moment. And one of the things that I did was stare at his bookshelf. And on his bookshelf, there was this book about love. It was a book about love. And I looked at it, got the title, went home, looked it up on Amazon, bought it, and read it. And, and the book about love was titled A General Theory of Love. A general theory of love. I mean, this doesn't look necessarily romantic, but, but here, here we go. I, I read this book. It's written by three medical doctors, and they are writing a general theory of love. And I, and I read it. And it, it, it explains, according to these three medical doctors, love. And what it does is it walks through the human body and the human experience of when you love another person. And it was all of these studies and walking through and observations of how do people feel? What happens in their body? And it was a scientific assessment and, and then a theorizing of this is love. And it, it literally walked through like what goes on chemically in the human body? What goes on 
physiologically when two people love each other and they interact and when things go well and when things go poorly. And they would mark off these things and did all these research and they broke it all down. And then there was this description and these diagrams in this book of, of the brainstem and the brain system and how the brain works. And it talked a lot about the limbic cortex, the limbic cortex. And then it talked about limbic uh, regulation and then limbic resonance and then limbic revision. And I, and I read it and I went, okay, this is love. It was, it was entirely, wholly disappointing. Like, th this, is, this is love? This, is, this isn't motivating me to come back into this session and work through these things with my wife. Like, this, like, can it, like, you could probably inject something and I could just be fixed, right? If, if it was all just the, how the limbic system works and all... What it did is it broke it down into the human. Now, none of those, those authors had anything to do with, with, with Jesus or anything to do with, with, with my faith, with your faith, with scripture. It wasn't that. It was, it was just science. And it was explaining the human body and chemical, physiological, biological functions and how we worked. And it said, this is, this is our general theory of love. If human beings want to understand love, this is it. And it breaks it down and says this. And I read it and I went, man, that is not, that is not inspiring. Now, is it, is it true? Is it scientifically true? Yes. But what it did is it, it, it missed something else. It, it, it helped me, not that I needed a reminding of this, but it helped me put, put into, into front and center, I, I actually think there is more to me than just the functions of my physical being. I, th I think there's something more. And not only in me, but I think in between the person I know and love the most in this life. I don't think this can be explained just purely in, in biological, scientific terms. There's, there's something more here. The Bible actually has something to say about the idea and the concept and the theory of love before we even get into feelings or behavior. And what it says is that it was God's idea and God took the first initiative. That God initiated love towards his creation, towards all of us. And that it, it there's this... Uh, there's this ex exchange between Jesus and a, and a guy who becomes kind of a buddy, a, a friend. And um, it's, it's somebody that comes to Jesus and says, I, I just don't understand. You got to help me. And it, it's the same kind of sense that I, I felt like I, like I read all this about love. And I go, this doesn't, this doesn't explain all my, my questions. This doesn't answer all my experience. And so help me understand. And this guy named Nicodemus uh, is a Pharisee, which means he's a religious leader and very, very well educated. Nicodemus is a, a part of the Jewish ruling council, which means he had a position of authority and was trusted by his, his culture and his community. And because of those things, he couldn't just publicly walk down the street and go knock on Jesus' door and say, hey, would you direct me? I need some answers. So he sneaks out at night and he walks over to Jesus' apartment and he knocks on the door and Jesus lets him in. And he says, hey, I've got, a, I've got some things I want to talk to you about. And he sits down with Jesus and he says, Jesus, you're different. Like, you're, of, you're from God. You're not from here. You're from God because you're doing these signs and teachings that no one else is doing. So that's, that's what I'm seeing. And, and Jesus says to him, um, yeah, if you want to actually step closer to me, if you want to see the world the way that I see it, if you want to understand, he uses this word kingdom. If you want to see the kingdom, you have to be born again. And that's where we actually today get our, our, our word born again, which means to, to come to life again. But Nicodemus, as educated and smart as he is, he doesn't try, quite track with it. And he's like, wait, wait a second. Um, I'm an adult, literally, educated, respected man, says to Jesus, I can't go back inside my mom and be born again. Like, that doesn't work. Like, really? That's what you come up with, Nicodemus? And Jesus is, says, okay, like, you don't understand. How do you not understand? Because you're an educated man and you have a position of, of prominence in your, in your city, in your culture. How is it that you don't even understand what I'm talking about? And he goes on and he says, no, I'm not talking about a human being that we can diagnose and, and study and, and write books about explaining you in, in terms of scientific terms. It's not just flesh. He says, it's not just flesh being born again as flesh, but you're more than that. He says, there's a spirit that needs to be reborn as spirit. What, he's, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, there's a part of you that is a soul that can't just be explained in scientific terms. And he looks at Nicodemus and he says, you're more than just your body. You're more than just chemical reactions. There's something more going on here. There is spirit. There's a soul in you. 
And that's the part that I see and I care about and I want to be restored and renewed in the best that it can be. And after Jesus gets done telling him that, the author of the book of John that records this entire conversation, do you want to know the very next thing that he writes that follows this as part of this, this account? It's this verse right here. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John is writing his book, the Gospel of John, and he records this interaction where Jesus says, you're not just flesh, but you're also a soul, a spirit. And God so loves both of these things together, flesh and soul, that he did something about it, that he took initiative to love. And the way that he demonstrated his love was to send his son, that God loves us all of who we are. And he did it first before we did anything. This is the story that is part of Advent. The Christmas time in Advent, and, and again, we don't have a, a nativity scene up here anywhere, uh, but many of you have them set up in your homes or you've seen them maybe even in public spots. One of the things that is always in tension with me in the Christmas season is that we, we display the reality, the historical reality of God coming in, in Jesus as a baby. And, and the reason that that has meaning is because that, that baby that's displayed in that manger it, regardless of how we contemporize it and, and, and change it throughout history and display it and all the different kinds of nativity scenes that we have, it's still a baby. But the reason that this story has relevance and meaning is because the baby, when an adult, is executed. And so we have this innocence and beauty in a baby being born, but it's connected to the other end of the story, which is, which is Jesus dying on the cross. And so one of the things in tension with me is as of all of the delights and the decoration of the Christmas season, all of this is relevant because, because Jesus dies. And it's hard for me to reconcile, but absolutely necessary for me to reconcile these two things, that that's the story that we're telling as part of Christmas. But as much as we hear those words of John 3.16, of God so loving the world that he gave his son, many of us live in a different story. We live in a different reality. We tell ourselves that things are different and it's actually connected to Christmas as well. I think there's another story that is in, in contrast to the one that we're trying to tell here, but we've all sung the song and we all are very familiar with the words and it's, it's these words. You better watch out. I'm not gonna sing it, by the way. You better not cry. You better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And just, if you've got kids with you, um, I'm no respecter of Santa Claus. So I'm, I appreciate him, he's fun and big and gives me stuff, I, I suppose, but I'm, we're, we're just gonna talk openly about Santa Claus here in this space, just to let you know. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Now, we're, this is, like, we're familiar with this, right? Like, we, we could close our eyes and sing this and repeat this, like, we, we know these words. And at the same time, we've all acknowledged at some point, like we have this like dual reality of, of Santa Claus, of he's, he's great and fun and he likes us and he's, uh, he's cute to put up in decorations and he brings us stuff. And then this other side of him that, we, you know, we kind of downplay a little bit that he's kind of he's spooky. Like he's, he sees us when we're sleeping. He knows when, when we're awake and he, he actually is keeping account of if we've been bad or good. And so the, the, the lesson that we take away from this is because he can do all those things, we should be good. And the threat implied is that if we're not good, we're not going to get what we want. Okay? Now, we can put Santa Claus on that and the funny, the funny song and all that. The reality is, is that unchecked, if we just walk through our life, this is the story that we believe. When we come to Advent, when we come to Christmas time, let's slow down for a minute and realize that we're being told an entirely different story from the Bible. It's the exact opposite story of Santa Claus. It's the exact opposite story that somebody... Now, there's some similarities, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. Scripture is very clear that God sees us at all times. He knows when we're awake. Yeah, he does. He knows when we've been bad or good. Absolutely, yes. God knows when we've been good and when we've been bad. But the last line is the most important line, and it's the absolute opposite of what God is telling us. 
When God takes the initiative to love us first, he loves us in the midst of us being bad. We read it earlier. Uh, Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. But when we, we realize that we're kind of blending Santa Claus and Jesus, gosh, let's, let's take a moment, take a deep breath and, and rip those apart. Like be extremely in, intentional and to do it with, with as much vigor and focus that we can and, and clarify that those are two entirely different stories. How much love do you feel from Santa Claus? Like none, like zero. Like we, we appreciate when he shows up and, and gives us stuff, right? But other than that, like we don't really want him watching us and we actually hope that he doesn't watch us. The story from Jesus is that, that Jesus would be watching us so much that he's with us all the time and can see us and that's always a good thing. That's the story that Jesus is telling. It's the exact opposite of Santa Claus. So be good for goodness sake is, Jesus, it like deletes that out. Like, no, 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 he says, if you don't get the first part, I see you, I'm watching you, I love you. I loved you even when you were still a sinner. Another way to translate that actual verse from Romans chapter five, verse eight, is that when we were enemies of God, when we were against God, when we were opposed to God, when we were doing the worst thing possible, when we were ignoring him, when we were believing he doesn't exist, when we don't care about him, when we dismiss him, when we redefine him to fit in our, our understanding and not how he defines himself, when we are enemies of God, the story doesn't change. That he's taken the initiative and he loves us, that he's reached out to us, that, he, that God loves us while we were still sinners, while we were enemies. Whether we were good or bad, God loves us. That's the story that Christmas tells over and over and over again. And it's the exact opposite of the story that we tell ourselves, that we end up thinking if we don't hear the good news of Jesus, if we don't hear the angels telling the shepherds, I have good news that will bring great joy for all people, that a savior has been born. When we don't hear that, we slide into, if I've been good, I get good. If I've been bad, I hope I can avoid whatever consequence comes for long enough till I can be good enough again to get good. And when you try to put love into that equation, it does not work. God's idea of love is that it's something that he offers to you and I freely, that he loves us before we were born, that he loves us when we were as good as we can possibly be and when we were an absolute enemy to God, that God loves us. That's the idea of love. But as Paul writes, and it comes through scripture over and over and over again, that God doesn't want us just to know the idea of it, but he wants to move beyond it to the experience of it. I have three sons, and they know that, that I love them. Um, they're all very different from one another, which is great. It would be boring if they were the same. Uh, I, I love them all independently and all differently. I've been very clear with them. I've communicated which one is my favorite and which is second and which is third. They know this. I've told them all they're my favorite. <laughs> Don't tell them. I, I can't imagine, you can imagine, but what, what, what if I overheard them saying to you, saying to anyone, I, I know my dad loves me, but I, I don't feel that my dad loves me. Now, let's, let's be honest. There have been points in their lives where they feel that I don't love them. I wish I was a perfect husband. I've been informed, I mean, a perfect dad, I've been informed that I'm not. Uh, if, you've, if you're a parent, you've had that experience of this just crushing disappointment that you've made a mistake and that your kids don't idealize you and think you are the best of all time. Like that's, I've, I've walked through that, it's been hard. I'm dealing with it. There's been times when they haven't felt it, but if I ever heard them saying that to somebody, I don't feel that my dad loves me. That, that would be crushing. And I wouldn't care if they said, I know my dad loves me, but I don't feel that my dad, if I don't care that they know it, if they don't feel it. Now, if that's crushing to me as a human father, we can just extrapolate that out to how God feels about me and you. When we don't feel that God loves us, there's a gap there in what he wants for us. Some of us have not felt that love from God for so long that we're convinced that he doesn't care or that that's just how it's supposed to be. I was talking with a friend recently and they just expressed like, I don't, I don't know that I've ever sensed God watching over me as a loving father. 
and we were able to talk about like, well, you got to know something. You're missing out. Like there's a disconnect there. You need to know that God actually wants you to feel that. You need to know that God cares about that, that he's put intention into it, that God wants you to feel his love for you. He says it, he says it this way in, in Romans chapter five. It's this, we, we read it before. Romans chapter five, verse five says this. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. When it says that it's been poured out to our hearts, what it means is that there's, a, there's an experience in, in us. Physiologically, chemically, yes, but deeper than that in our very soul that we know that God sees us and loves us. And there's a, there's a gap that many of us feel and we don't experience it. Henry Nouwen, is, um, he's a, a priest, and he was actually very prominent, uh, had a, a teaching post, was a professor, uh, and, and God called him uh, to go and work with those who had uh, mental uh, limitations and, uh, and struggles, were in, in different uh, facilities, and he went and spent his time caring for those uh, that needed full-time care in facilities and continued to, to write, but his life took a very different term than what he had imagined as a young priest of being known and famous and all. He still is very known and famous, but he, his primary work has been uh, in, in care facilities. He, he writes his book in the name of Jesus, and I want to read, and I want you to listen carefully, and it, and it has this description of the love that God has for us and the love that you and I experience on a human level and the difference, and he calls it first love and second love. It's not going to be up on the screen. Just listen to these words. Unconditional and unlimited love is what the evangelist John, or the one who wrote the book of John, and first, second, and third John, and the book of Revelation. The evangelist John calls God's love first love. Let us love, he says, because God loved us first, first John 4, 19. The love that often leaves us, listen to this, doubtful, frustrated, angry, resentful, is the second love. Not the first love from God, but the second love. That is to say, the affirmation, affection, sympathy, encouragement, and support we receive from our parents, teachers, spouses, and friends. Do you see that what he's doing? The first love is, is from God. The second love he's titling is, is our, our love with, with one another. We all know how limited, broken, and very fragile that love is. Behind the many expressions of this second love, there is always the chance of rejection, withdrawal, punishment, blackmail, violence, and even hatred. Many contemporary movies and plays portray the ambiguities and ambivalences of human relationships. And there are no, we can relate to this, no friendships, marriages, or communities in which the strains and stresses of the second love are not keenly felt. Often it seems that beneath the pleasantries of daily life, there are many gaping wounds that carry such names as, see if you can relate to these, Gaping wounds that carry such names as abandonment, betrayal, rejection, rupture, and loss. These are all the shadow side of the second love and reveal the darkness that never completely leaves the human heart. I hate that I can relate to that. I, I hate that I read those words that have such emotional weight behind them. Affect some of those words as I read them. You went to a dark place, and I, I'm sorry. You you went to a place because you saw a face or a name or a friend or a former friend, or a spouse or a former spouse or a parent, and you know that there's that word rupture and loss that that we experience that on a on a human level, and it's costly. And it's part of our stories and it's part of our reality. And it's called the second love because it's, it's not the best. It's what we have on a human level. But hear this. It's, it's the very landscape. It's the very context. It's the very place where we have deep in our souls this longing for a better love that we have an ideal that we can hang on to and that we can imagine. And it's, 
It's that ideal, it's that better love that comes only from God. And it's only in our human broken relationships and broken reality that the love of God actually makes sense. And it's like, it's like dropping a single drop of some kind of pure solution into something that clears up everything and it makes it better. And not 100% of the time and not all the time. But we can imagine that kind of love and we can long for it because it's actually true. And we go looking for it in all different kinds of ways. And we tell the Christmas story and we walk through Advent because this is the story that offers the love that we long for. The first love that is from God that does not come as a result of our behavior or our resume or our skill or our capacity, but comes at God's initiative towards us, that he, that he goes first, that he takes the first step, that he moves towards us. It's the first love. There's a, a beautiful depiction of this in the book of Luke. And again, it's Jesus interacting with a person. Jesus is invited over to dinner to uh, a party of the Pharisees, which is kind of an oxymoron. I don't know if the Pharisees partied, but they had a, a, a lunch, a dinner. And it was either in their courtyard or in a, in a large room in a Pharisee's home. And they you know, had larger homes and a lot of, a lot of money often. And they um, would host these debates. And they brought in Jesus. And Jesus is lounging at the table with the Pharisees. And it's open to the public. And so people would stream in off the street and they would crowd a lot around uh, the dinner table, and, and again, in that culture, in the Mediterranean culture, they would have literally been sitting on a pillow with the feet out to the side, elbow on the table, talking and discussing while eating, and Jesus is in that setting. And Simon is one of the Pharisees, and he asks Jesus, he says to him, if you were a real prophet, like I imagine a prophet, you would know that the people standing closest to you, specifically that woman that is standing right behind you, touching your feet right now, is a sinful woman. And Jesus says to Simon, hey, I, I got a little thought for you, a question for you. If, uh, if somebody owed $5,000 to a man and somebody else owed $50,000 to that same man, and that man who was owed all that money realized that neither one of them could pay a single penny, and he looked at both of them and says, I'm gonna relieve your debts, you owe me nothing, which of those two men would be happier? Which would be more glad? And Simon answers correctly. And the one that was forgiven $50,000 debt worth versus five, the one that was forgiven $50,000 debt would be so much more excited than the one that was forgiven $5,000 debt. And he says, yeah, you've answered correctly. As it pertains to this woman that is standing behind me who's been weeping for the last hour, who has knelt down and is doing this tremendously awkward, uncomfortable thing of crying on my feet and then using her hair to wipe my feet and then has taken out perfume and has wiped the perfume on my feet. She's having almost an out-of-body experience. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's overwhelmed with emotion. And the reason she is, is because she's actually feeling loved by me right now that I've forgiven her and I see her for who she is, not just what she's done. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, these words, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus is, is identifying, and it doesn't quite come in the order that we think it would, that, that, that she just defines her belief and confesses her belief, and then Jesus says, you're forgiven, and then she, maybe she's baptized. I mean, it doesn't go in this right order. It's just that she senses that she's loved by this person. And she does this weird, awkward demonstration of that. And Jesus says, She's loving me in return because she's realized that I've loved her first, that I've not judged her, that I see her for who she is, and that now she's forgiven because she's responded to me in this way, and he forgives her. He uses this analogy being forgiven much, that she's able to love much, but it, it identifies a woman who's been impacted and has this effective emotional response to Jesus because she realizes that she's been loved by nobody else around her but Jesus. The God of the universe wants you and I to feel that he loves us. That he goes to great lengths to tell stories over and over again of what it's like and invites us into that. He wants us to know and understand love. He wants us to feel his love, but then he also wants us to see the, the action and the demonstration of it that comes not through just the birth of Jesus, but 
through him going to the cross and giving his life and dying and rising again. That that was God's idea from the beginning, that he took the initiative before any of us had the thought or took a step towards him. While we were still enemies and sinners, Christ died for us. I, uh, I've shared that my dad has dementia. Four months ago, we moved him into a care facility full time. My relationship with my dad is very different than it was five years ago. He can't hardly speak. He, um, speech is very limited. Um, I haven't seen him in uh, three and a half, four months now. Um, I really hope that he still recognizes me and that I can see in his eyes when I see him next that he'll, he'll know me. Um, I don't know what that'll be like. Um, so many of you and many others have, have shared stories of walking with family through dementia, different neurological diseases that limit capacity and understanding. Um, one was passed along to me this past week. It was of a, uh, of a father and a husband who um, was struggling from something very similar to dementia. They weren't quite sure if it was dementia, but it was displayed like that. And, um, and he had had this habit of buying his wife through all the decades of their marriage, little gifts. That was his way of demonstrating love to his wife was these little gifts. Sometimes it was jewelry, sometimes it was little trinkets, sometimes it was uh, things that he would make, but he would, he would get these little sweet kind of special gifts and, and just give them to her like indiscriminately, like just kind of regularly. Um, he also loved to golf. And so his family, even though he was struggling and couldn't communicate very well and was much more limited than before, they would still take him to this golf course that he always went to. And, and they dropped him off one day at the golf course and they knew the people there and they trusted him. He could still golf a little bit. And they came back several hours later and picked him up. And he looked more tired than normal, more disheveled than normal. And they tried to figure out like what's going on, but he can't communicate very well. And so they're asking those that were working and they're like, actually, he didn't even golf today. And they're like, well, what did he do? He's been here for hours. What did he do? And they said, uh, we don't know. That he was here, and then he was gone, and then he was back, and he looks really worn out and tired, and he's trying to, they just can't, we can't figure it out. It took quite a long time, but they finally figured out that after they had dropped him off at the golf course, instead of going and golfing like normal, he had left the golf course. He had walked two miles down the road where there was a mall, and he had gone into the mall, and he had gone to a jewelry store, and he had intended to buy his, his wife a piece of jewelry because that's what he did. He bought her gifts. But he couldn't communicate. And so he couldn't actually buy the jewelry. So he walked the two miles back without a gift, without the piece of jewelry, and sat at the golf course until he was picked up. And they pieced all this together and realized that at great cost to himself of being exhausted, of walking all that way, not being able to communicate, not being able to get his wife a gift, that he was home with his wife, exhausted from the entire experience. And you can imagine the emotions of the family of rising and falling, of like, what's happened? Are you safe? Are you okay? What happened to you? And then finally realizing and communicating to his wife on behalf of him what had happened. I love that story. It gives me hope that, that a person is still there. It reveals that there is this, this love that is still in that man who walked those miles in an attempt to love his wife really well, but then couldn't. And you think like, at the end of that day, did she feel love? Absolutely. Did she know that she was loved? Absolutely. Did she feel it like, not scientifically and in her limbic resonance or revision, in her limbic core? No, she didn't care about that. She knew and felt that she was loved, that her diminished husband went to this great effort to give her a gift that he took action and walked all that miles because he loved her. That's like a faint hint of what God has done for us. Before we knew it, before we knew to ask it, before we were in a place of need, that God took the step towards us, that he initiated love towards us, to love us in the very way that we needed. And he invites us to do the same. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Maybe you've heard these before. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. The way that we treat one another becomes this demonstration of knowing that God has taken the initiative towards us to love us. Not just that we know it, not just that we feel it, but that we see it demonstrated as well, that we get to demonstrate it towards others. That's our call. As we walk through this Christmas season, 
as we think about hope and peace and joy, it comes from the love of God, demonstrated in this story in the person and work of Jesus. And as we know it, as we feel it, we're then called to demonstrate it towards others. I wanna, we've done these analog assignments that are meant to slow us down a little bit. I've got one that I think will slow us down and will give us a chance to actually love one another in a very simple and practical way, and I hope easy way. Here's what it is. It involves this right here. This is a, if you can't tell, this is a candle. Um, and uh, somebody in our staff um, did some research, and this will last a couple hours, I believe. Two hours, an hour and a half. I don't have a number for you. Um, here's what this will last long enough for. For you to eat a meal. And so, here's, here's the idea. We've got a whole bunch of these set out in the lobby. And we're done with our time here today as we're leaving, as you're walking out. Will you take one? And take one, I'm going to say this, take one per meal. And so if you want to do this more than once, you can take more than one candle. Uh, but if you're like a family of five, you don't necessarily need five candles. But you can take five candles if you need them. We've got enough. But if you would take a candle, and in the next two weeks before the end of the year, so in 2023, if you would set it on a table, and you'd light it, and you'd share a meal with one other person, or with a family, or who, whoever you want to invite over, and you would turn off the lights and set your phones aside and no screens on, and that you would just talk over a meal. You can decide what to talk about. You could, just, you could eat in silence for all I care, but that you would actually take the time to spend with one another eating a meal, and by that simple act, that simple behavior, that simple experience of preparing food together, bought or made together, doesn't matter, inviting somebody in, sitting around a table, lighting a candle, turning everything else off, creates an environment to see one another, to engage with one another, to talk with one another, to love one another. It's a simple way. Now, if you're dating, be careful. But I mean, that, yeah, there you go. That could, that could work really well for you. Or I mean, I don't, I mean, this is, a, this is a meal by candlelight, which is just entirely different than a candlelight dinner. Okay, I mean, that's, let it be what you want it to be, really. If, if you're dating, if you're married, if you want to do this, you and your spouse, like that, that, that's awesome, great. But in an environment where you've turned off everything else and you're just looking at a few other people around you, spending that time together in each other's presence, caring for one another, seeing one another, it's an opportunity to love one another. It will slow you down. You cannot do this fast. It's impossible. It gets dangerous. Things get caught on fire and it's not good. Take the time to do that. So those are in the lobby afterwards. Here's what I want to invite you to now. We're going to come to this table, and this table is the demonstration of the story of God's love for us, of Jesus going to the cross. And so we've got communion in front of us. And as we continue to sing, if you'd come to these tables and you take a juice that represents Jesus' body or blood shed for us and a, a little cracker that represents his, his body broken for us. And this is the other part of the story of the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus that he went to the cross for us. It's the demonstration of God's love, of him taking the initiative towards us because he sees us, each and every one of us, and loves us. Jesus, as we hear your story again, as we walk into this next week, would you help us to slow down of all that's going to go on this next week, whether we're traveling or finishing out school or working and pushing till the end or getting stuff done, buying presents, will you help us to slow down, to take a deep breath, to pause and in the midst of that, to know that we are loved by you, that you took the initiative towards us, that you desire that we feel and experience your love, known through your acts that you've done for us, sending your son, Jesus, you going to the cross. As we continue to sing and come to these tables, Jesus, would you meet us in this moment?